So with dinosaurs coming into my life, I often wondered what would happen if I could go back into theirs. Dinosaurs, time machines. Put them together and you have a tale one billion years old. Welcome to the 18th episode of Zero Hour Strikes, the show that covers DC's 1994 crossover event, Zero Hour Crisis in Time. Every issue, every tie-in, every zero issue, I'm Siskoid. I'm Bess. And in this episode, we take a look at Catwoman number 14 and Anima number 7. Bass, these are really the last zero-hour tie-in books with the zero-hour banner across the top. Really? We're at the end of this particular phase of the project. Well, now, it went by so fast. 18 months? <laughs> so yeah, Catwoman and Anima. We kept like two ladies for the end. And uh, let's start with Catwoman. What's been going on with Catwoman at this time? Well, after Batman Year One, she got a gritty Year One miniseries, and it proved popular enough to spawn a present-day series, initially written by Joe Duffy. This is actually her last issue here, and drawn by the popular Jim Ballant, who was, uh, it was and is known for putting generous busts on women, let's say. Um, Selena Kyle is a cat burglar with a heart of gold, and her series would last almost 100 issues. Five years was spent in this particular costume. So this is the costume that people identify with Catwoman from that era. And really, there's always been a Catwoman series on the stands since then. Uh, so, oh, wow. Yeah, really, right? Catwoman is always like New 52, Catwoman. They're always bringing out Catwoman as a standalone star, but it started with this series, really. Uh, and in 1994, they're still exploring her status quo as a criminal who has her own book. What do you do with that? You know, today, there's quite a few more of those. And, uh, well, Mike, I guess my question is, where are you as a Catwoman fan, Bus? Um, well, you know what? I, I really like Catwoman. I uh, I always liked her. I always liked that she had this incredible set of skills, and I always liked that she was kind of gray all the time. She wasn't white or black. She's, she was always gray, and I like these characters because they, uh, they have depth. They can't be totally villainous. They have to be sympathetic or else we wouldn't follow their adventures. So th- Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm also a big Superman fan, so you know, I like my totally white superheroes, so that's not white in the, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the light side superheroes and you know i really like the villains sometimes i mean i i enjoy my joker and my my lex luthor and and catwoman's always been up there and you know what i was a teenager when when michelle pfeiffer played selena kyle batman returns yeah that pretty much sealed my deal <laughs> well she's she's been played by many uh many an actress in fact so well, yeah actually yeah you know what yeah every time every time yeah to me like the 60s well, there were three uh, actresses who played Catwoman in the '60s, so uh-huh. uh, you had like uh, you had a, a nice choice there. Julie Newmar was mine. Uh, the casting of Catwoman has always been somewhat important. Different actresses put their mark on it. And don't get me wrong, I think Holly Berry would have made a great Catwoman if the movie wasn't so horrible. I've only seen the basketball scene, so I don't know. Because, <laughs> because <laughs> you know, I mean, if that movie was well written and was a good Catwoman movie. It would have been great. And Holly Berry would have been great. From what I've seen, it's it's almost more of a Vixen movie. Oh, totally is. Yeah. Totally is. So, uh, well, anyways. Yeah, Catwoman is, is like, it's a no-brainer. You know, it's hard to screw up Catwoman 
as a concept, I think. Uh, yeah. They did it there, but that's because I think they didn't go with the concept. They did, you know, they did something else with it. 100%, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, Catwoman number 14, let's get into it. It's by Joe Duffy, Jim Ballant, and Bob Smith. It's called Broken Mirrors. It goes a little something like this. Catwoman has just stolen, among other things, the famous Bast Bed. The Bast Bed? Is that where you sleep? Bast Bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we call it here. <laughs> An Egyptian-themed antique, and she's sleeping in it. Meanwhile, an insurance company sends a man called Ash to find her and retrieve the items. Next morning, Selena wakes up to vegetation in her apartment. Her cat turned into a friendly saber-toothed tiger, and Ash is a caveman come to retrieve his pet, basically. The tiger causes problems in the building, and Selena and Ash race after it, but are stunned to find a mix of dinosaurs and 19th century vehicles and people in Gotham. The cat's been impounded, but the, the pound becomes a hunting lodge, so they raid the place together to prevent it from getting shot. Then things get weirder when Selena sees past and future selves in the mirror and feeling that the universe is coming to an end, she kisses Ash deeply, white out. It's a very simple one, this one. Yeah, it's not complicated. You know, just before we see all the uh, the costumes. Once in future cat women. There, yeah, there's this one scene, this one action shot where she has the whip out and everything. I think it's probably the best Catwoman action shot I've seen. Okay. Oh, yeah. I just love this. I, I would make a poster out of that. Where she's oh. going after um, the, the great white hunter who kind of looks like young Jim Gordon. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's go back to the beginning then. What about that cover? Oh, the cover's fine. Yeah, it's, it's only fine, right? It's... it's <laughs> Yeah, honestly, it's 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 only fine. I enjoy that Catwoman isn't overly sexy because that's my one thing with Catwoman. Most of the time, they just draw her. It's just too much. You don't think this is too much? I don't think it's too much. No, she actually looks pissed off. I mean, okay. she has a figure. I mean, she has a yeah, figure. Yeah, the figure is she... insane in this era. Jim Ballard yeah. draws... You know, any any artist who draws a costume where basically the person is naked because the underboobage is impossible. You know, there's just no fabric that does this, man. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, everything is impossible. I mean, her shins are impossible. I mean, <laughs> I mean everything's impossible. Yeah, but it, she's not being uh, seductive or anything. That's what you mean. No, exactly. She looks like she's going to pounce. You know, she's she has her claws out and she has this look on her face and... It's very action-driven. Yeah. But there are dinosaurs in there, and the Ash guy kind of looks weird. Yeah. I don't know why he has, like, red eyes, like he's gone zombie in this, so that's a, a strange notion. I, my problem with the cover is probably that's just too busy. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. You know, I've seen this cover before. I had all of the, the comics out for, you know, for the entire project, and uh -huh. so I, I've seen the cover, and um, it just strikes me now when we're investigating it that the scene is outside. You know, it's like there's just so much. It's like it could be yeah. in an in interior, but the buildings and the trees and the the beams and the wall, you know, the the, the debris and the dinosaur. I mean, there's so little sky that it. I felt it was like a, a doorway behind her or something. You know, that's that's yeah. that's what the eye captures immediately. It really looks like that. And the zero hour on top of it kind of makes it like a door. Mm. But yeah, it's outside. It's outside. And yeah. An elevator door. <laughs> the, the zero hour <laughs> is kind of an elevator banner or something. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's it's okay. I think Catwoman just looks very Catwoman-y. 
But the rest, I, you know what? I really enjoyed a saber tooth tiger or the saber tooth cat in this uh, in this case. Yeah, I, I I gotta say, Ash and the saber tooth tiger. Okay. Yeah. Is this on purpose? Are they doing a Kazar riff? Because Ash looks like <laughs> that's what I- <laughs> Yeah, Ash looks like Kazar. The cat looks like Zabu. Yeah. And given that Joe Duffy was better known as a Marvel writer. It almost seems on purpose. Like, I looked, like, did she ever do any KZR stories? I, I didn't find any with my cursory research. But it does seem like, like, is that supposed to be? And in a way, I, I hope it is, because it feels like it's not just, you know, like, time is coming apart. And it's not just that there's dinosaurs and whatnot. It's that they crashed into the Marvel Universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to look it up I, for one second there. I wasn't sure if, because I thought exactly the same thing. Is this Kazar? And and I had to look. I'm wasn't Kazar in the Marvel universe? I had to look it up because I was sure this was Kazar. But no, no, it's not. But you know what? I really dig the saber toothed tiger with Catwoman. I think that should have been a thing. Yeah, I mean, why not, right? It's like uh, Harley Quinn and Joker with the hyenas, and and she has pets. Yeah. She has cats. But never like a battle cat. Let's just say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and this would have been great. I mean, I mean, it's easy to make this thing where she robs somebody and, you know, does uh, uh, genetic experiments on things. And she has to all of a sudden just yeah. save these cats. And there's this one saber tooth in there that falls in love with her or something. A universe with man bat can be a universe with a saber tooth tiger in the present day. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's a comic book. You can link them telepathically if you want. Oh. I mean, nobody cares. Um, be careful. You, you're in the Halle Berry territory. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the power comes from the cat. Do you ship them? Is, is, does, does this make sense? Not, I mean, not the cat. <laughs> I, obviously, you ship Catwoman and the Sabretooth Tiger. And Kazar. But with Kazar, yeah, because <laughs> Ash, you know, they have a kiss at the end, but he's basically a caveman. She kisses him because she sees in the mirror his other self who is, I guess, a handsome guy in the contemporary era. Spoiler here, I do not believe that Ash ever appeared before or again. So <laughs> he, he yeah, got eaten yeah. up by the time wave. Uh, so if you, if you ship these two characters, I'm sorry, they're not meant to be together. That's, exactly, that's the yeah. end. What about all the sexy stuff? Because you said the cover, she's not too sexy, but she spends a good part of the issue in lingerie. So... Yeah. What about this? What about the interiors? Is it too sexy for my love? Too sexy for my love? Love's going to leave. Um, did it bug you? You know what? It kind of did bug me because I know my share of ladies. <laughs> none of them wear lingerie to bed. Alone. Yeah, alone. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It can still be sex. I mean, it can be sexy nightwear. Don't get me wrong. It can be like this tank top or or a spaghetti strap thing with, you know, panties or any, but lingerie, never. This is lingerie to the point where you might wake up choking on a strap. Oh, yeah. Because it's so flimsy. It's so, it doesn't seem to hang on her very well. Well, it doesn't. And I mean, it has this huge transparent part. And I think it was maybe a bit too much. They're, They're always trying to sex up Catwoman. And, and don't get me wrong. She's a sexy character, but. But maybe that's the point. Like, you don't need to sex her up. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think this is just going too far. This is like the teenage boy type sexy thing. Um, Of course, we're grown men, so we're like, eh. 
<laughs> She'd be sexy in a t-shirt and a and one slipper. Who are we kidding here? But <laughs> yeah, but I do love the waking up portion of this. So she, you know, she wakes up in bed. The cat's been turned into a saber tooth, and it's like every cat in there, big or something. Maybe it's just forced. No, you're right. There's like a jaguar or something. I don't know. When she went to bed, what were the cats? <laughs> well, they were small. They were all small. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. But she's got many cats on her bed when she goes to sleep. And then when she wakes up, there's like, there's at least two big cats. But one of one of them is a contemporary kind of leopard or something. And then there's a tiger in the back. He's just not colored. Okay, I'm seeing it. They're just, they've all been turned yeah. into like big cats. Yeah, they're all huge. One's eating a rat. <laughs> I mean, it's a yeah. <laughs> big ass rat just eating the rat. This is Gotham. Uh, this is Gotham. There's rats in a luxury apartment or else. I mean, maybe it's part of the... The rats used to exist, and like that, that rat is from the past. You know what? I think the cats are small. Uh, they're all small. On the next page, we see them again, and they're all small. Oh, yeah. It was just perspective, I think. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, because or else the, um, the rat would be huge. If the cats grew. Only the saber tooth is really big, but he's quite sweet. You talked about that one shot where she's uh, you know, bringing out the whip. And it is very cool. Yeah. I want to mention page 14, which is uh, all dinosaurs in Gotham. So I'm a sucker for a good dinosaur pick. And uh, they, they really, you know, it's like a silent, almost silent page because there's a little caption. Yeah. Which says Spielberg would love this. It's great to see dinosaurs in a contemporary world or, or even in a natural world. I'm a sucker for dinosaur art. And this is pretty good, actually. I, I recognize some species yeah. there. It's not like the cover... I don't know what that dinosaur is supposed to be. I, I don't feel like that's a good T-Rex, but the interiors are, you know, much better sourced or oh, yeah. researched. Oh, yeah, big time. The perspective also with, you know, the camera shooting up towards these buildings and all the pterodactyls. I mean, it's a it's a very nice shot. I mean, for something that does not really tie into Zero Hour, like Catwoman is not part of the team or there's no extant kind of stuff going on, this feels like, okay, this is one of the comics where time seems the most out of whack in a way. As we progress in this story, everything just becomes something else with these little time transformations. The The animal control center car becomes like this cage trolley with a horse you know uh their car becomes horses and and time changes stuff like immediately and the and i really enjoyed how we kind of feel that we're going back in time in this in this comic mm, yeah what well, my question is though how did the animal control center van catch a saber-toothed tiger <laughs> like it did it revert to a normal cat and and who is this really zealous animal control person that who's the dog catcher here who's still doing their job while dinosaurs <laughs> rampage across the city i, I don't know yeah <laughs> i don't know. Uh, i do like that bit where the animal control center itself is also a behavioral research center because of course it's it's gotham so even the pound it's kind of an Arkham Asylum for animals. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if they did that on purpose, but it seems like like they catch your dog and they're going to experiment on it. I mean, that's not, it's Gotham. <laughs> it's Gotham. So th let's talk about the costumes that are seen in the mirrors. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, that's like the little Easter eggs. So we have a year one Catwoman. That's the gray one that they really did. That's the one they put in the animated series. 
Yeah. yeah. The ne- one next to her is the Golden Age Catwoman. I think that that really influences the one we are seeing right now, the, the late 90s. The purple. Uh, you know, with, with the purple and the, the breasts. And, yes. You know, yes. Uh, the Golden Age and also in the Silver Age also had that costume at, at parts, or maybe the Bronze Age, uh, because who's who has, like, the modern Catwoman is also like this. The yeah. difference is the green cape, really. Like, green cape, a lot more cleavage. Rather than a full cat suit, the legs are bare. So that's that's like classic look Catwoman, let's say. Oh, yeah. And uh, then we have th- – th- that, that one's a deep cut. The one with the red mask. Isn't that like first appearance? No, no. First appearance, I wish it were in there. Because first appearance is like uh, – is the cleavage costume. Uh, the very first appearance, she's actually just Selena Kyle. There's no costume. But the first okay. costume is kind of like the, the Golden Age one. But the cat is a full – mascot cat head oh oh <laughs> so I, wish were, I wish it were in there uh no it's a deep cut because i think it was only <laughs> used like in one or a few stories in 1969 or something okay it's, it's like the i guess you would call it the silver age if they did a, like a golden age a year one golden age silver age silver age she had many different costumes notwithstanding the tv show but after the tv show was canceled they kind of wanted to change her look or something and this is it it oh. was it, it was a blip as far as I can tell, you know, uh, it was a blip in her history, the deep cut. And then the one where she's like a tigress is, I guess, the future, future or could have been or shouldn't have been because it's terrible. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, those are the ones that they've decided. I wish there were a lot more. Like, I wish it was like a real mirror gallery and we saw that full cat head. We, you know, tributes to Batman 66 and to... Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, which, you know, was in the past of this. Maybe rights issues? I don't know. But I wish there had been a little more. Well, yeah, actually, I I really wish that they had they had gone, you know, the, the Batman and Superman route, where we have, like, this bunch of all these Superman or all these Batman uh, in all the different costumes. Yeah. I wish they would have done that with her. Catwoman, she's, she's iconic. There was a room for that. Well, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, it's like a full page and there's no room. If it were like a double page spread, we could have had, you know, many cat women in there. But what we get is is good enough. Yeah, There was room for that because she's had so many costumes. It would have been great to see them all really in full, you know, going all the way with the full, the full look. Because even the, like the deep cut here, we can barely see it. There's red and there's like a black, I guess the legs are kind of bluish. Uh, but it's hard to say. It's like she's blocking the view of the one costume that's that we're not used to, basically. It kind of feels like they weren't sure what the costume looked like. So they kind of went <laughs> away into that, you know. I, it kind of feels like they couldn't remember. So they just put her over. <laughs> but And you know what? My preference is non-cleavagey uh, Catwoman. I really like that Catwoman is fully clothed, uh, even though the, I mean, her costume is basically paint. Uh, I, I really enjoy that she's fully, fully dressed. Okay. <laughs> that's just your, that's, that's your preferred. That's just but my you, thing. You prefer yeah. like the gray one from the cartoon or the, the purple one in this? Uh, I, I like the gray from the cartoon. Okay. Because I, I like what they did later as well. You know, like the, the some more leathery kind of stuff that she had after this era of the goggles, you know, the, that one. Yeah. Yeah. I like the goggles. I, I like when Catwoman, that's one thing with some of the superheroes, I like when their costumes are uh, efficient and the everything on the costume seems like it should be there to, to play a role in the work. And Batman's one of them. 
You know, I like when Batman looks like somebody who's prepared to go on a superhero fight. And I like when Catwoman has tools, you know, like goggles and, you know, she has this whip, but I, I like when the whip plays a m- bigger part than just whipping. <laughs> you know? Like the cat line or something. A- exactly. Exactly. I like it when the non-powered superheroes or, or villains or, or in this case, anti-hero. I like it when they're non-powered that they have equipment. So that's I, I like the leathery, the goggly, almost steampunky Catwoman. Cool. Final thoughts on this issue? Uh, you know what? It was better than I expected. For some reason, I wasn't expecting much. I was pleasantly surprised with our fake Kazar. He says nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's just there for, you know, being being good looking and half naked. And I do enjoy this white out paneling thing. We've seen it once last time we, we talked about the how the, the paneling going to white and everything seem dissolving or something. And they do it again in this issue. So I, I kind of like it. I agree. It is like they took the time to do a one-off. It's a complete story, top to bottom, and we get a sense of what her life is normally like, and then things go crazy, and that's it. It doesn't need to be any more than that. What they didn't do, which I'm happy about, is is like continue a bunch of subplots that we don't know anything about, and that is a segue <laughs> to their next book. After we come back from uh, the promo, we'll talk about Anima, number seven. And that one's not easy to get into. I'll just say that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still trying to get it. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Star Commander Steel. Seven Soldiers of Liberty. Victor Infinity Dale. Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire & Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of themed shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the golden age of comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. This town needs an enema. We're back. So we're talking about Anima number seven. Bass, who the hell is Anima? Well, I believe (laughs) that Anima would be the representation of self in, I don't know. I don't know what the hell Anima is. I hear it once in a while when talking about psychology or I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, it's Freud or it's Jung or. Jung, I think, yeah. Which one of these? I think it's Jung, yeah. With, uh, you know, representation of your self in dreams and stuff like that. I, I really well, don't know. That's a pretty good, I'm, I'm guessing you research some of this. Oh, uh, no, this is top of my head uh, what I remember from universe. Uh, well, in the comics, she's one of the new blood characters introduced in the 1993 Bloodlines DC Annuals. Basically, Ooh. these gross aliens come to Earth to drink our spine fluid, and sometimes that gives people powers. Each annual created a new character, could be a hero or a villain, the most popular and resilient of which was Hitman. You might have heard of him. 
Okay. Yeah, Anima is another one who got her own series, written by fantasy authors Elizabeth Hand and Paul Whitcover, in which Courtney Mason, Anima, struggles with her unleashing the powers of the Animus inside her, a monster that feeds on human souls. So basically, uh, she can leech energy from people, she can fly, she has super strength. Uh, and a clawed armor derived from him. Her series was kind of a Jungian nightmare meets superheroes, and it was canceled after 16 issues due to low sales. Anima would go on to be a member of the Titans West and of Blood Pack before being brutally killed. In fact, cut in half in wow. Faces of Evil in 2009. Then the Dio's DC, where, uh, <laughs> where young heroes go to die. <laughs> Well, we'll call it like it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm not laughing because it's not true. Anima (laughs) is not a book I read at the time. I will say that based on this one issue, I feel like the whole run might be interesting to read. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I didn't understand a lick of it, but uh, the art was great. and uh, The story was interesting. I just didn't get it. And I certainly didn't get it within the context of... Zero hour. It does feel apart from the rest of the DCU. We'll talk about that. Let's just get into a synopsis. And uh, this one's going to go two paragraphs at least. <laughs> anima, anima number seven is by Elizabeth Hand, Paul Whitcover, Brent Anderson, who's guest artist here, and Will Blyberg. It's called Suddenly Johnny Gets a Feeling. We start in the mystical realm of Arcana. In the Fortress of Mania, where various beings are being held and tortured, including the Animus. We're told that every time Anima summons the Animus, it weakens the wall between worlds, and that in fact, her family's DNA was manipulated for generations so that she could be used this way. Mania gloats that the Animus's sister, Eris, has gone to the real world to pay Anima a visit, and that seems to distress him. At a facility called Telus in our world... Anima's brother is visiting their mother, who is in a coma, hooked up to some high-tech machines. He's been getting communications from Eris, who is posing as his spirit guide, and he's sure she'll help them. Cut to Rain City, where Anima is flying around with a being called Lost Johnny, saying that one minute they were trapped in Arcana, the next editorial mandate, by which I mean Superman and Metron, pulled them out of there to take part in Zero Hour. We did see her in the crowd scenes. Uh, Johnny is trying to make her understand her place in the world, that she's an avatar foretold by prophecy to awaken the wolf Fenris, which happens to be her mother's spirit guide, which should also awaken her. I'm just up to page 11. Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of stuff. Then Eris shows up for a fight. Anima fights her, and lost Johnny helps with his magic guitar. It lasts about a panel. <laughs> it's just a panel before Eris teleports to Telus, where Anima's brother is made to dream about Eris, and that's what's called her there. Meanwhile, Texas troopers are investigating a weird murder. Mania talks about the gate being opened wide, which relates to zero hour and reality coming apart. And she calls up a storm that adds to the chaos. Now, on a bus, the band called Boojum, who appear in almost every issue, are creeped out by the people from every era sitting in the seats. A man with red eyes gets off the bus and makes a strange reference to the fact that he knows them, but they haven't met yet. At a baseball park, supporting character Kyle Woodleaf can't understand why he's in a baseball uniform and that sports legend Casey Stengel 
is on the field. The pitcher throws a bald monster that almost hits him. The catcher is an undead skeleton. This is less about Zero Hour and more about the game Mania is playing. It attracts the attention of her father, the Nameless One, who calls her to uh, enact vengeance. Her time has come. And in the fortress, the Animus breaks his chains just as the universe, even this underside of it, goes to white. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, half of this I, I, like, cooked up by also looking at the DC wiki and who are these characters? And, you know, because the context isn't always there. If you'd been following Anima for the past six months, then you knew who everybody was. This is a series that did not stop for zero hour. Pulled Anima out of whatever she was doing in Arcana to participate. So she's back in our world. They pay lip service to it. Uh, but to me, it felt a lot more like, a little bit like what they did with um, uh, Hawkman, where yeah. reality is falling apart so that then a mythical creature is loose, which was the Hawk God in that series. Here it's the Jungian characters, the Animus and Mania, and you know the walls of uh, reality break apart so these mystical yeah. or psychological beings can crash on Earth. What's the purpose? Because if everything goes to white and everything is disappears, it's like... Yay, we can go to Earth just as it disappears. I don't know. (laughs) I think it feels like a fun story. And I mean, Johnny does look like Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, he has a guitar. He may be a tribute. I I know that the issue before this in the Arcana or something, there are other musicians and many of them are like real world musicians who are dead. Uh, People like Frank Zappa and um, Morrison. And, you know, it's like... Just like the baseball player here is an actual ball player who had passed away. But, you know, it's like the the series is kind of using, I don't know, iconic celebrities. It's like maybe they're part of whatever our union world. You, you know, we think of yeah, yeah. our heroes and people we know and people we might emulate and they become real in that world. I'm, I'm guessing because I haven't read it. But, yeah, so he's out of that group of dead musicians you know fictional in this case so he gets to hang around yeah well i was looking for uh the date when this was uh published well it's all 1994 isn't it oh it's 94 yeah because stevie <laughs> ray vaughn stevie ray vaughn died in 1990 it makes sense that it looks like stevie ray vaughn i'm not a big stevie ray vaughn fan i just knew him because i had a friend who plays guitar when he was a teenager and that's what happens <laughs> when <laughs> teenagers play guitar. They get all into Stevie Ray Vaughan and stuff like that. I find this story interesting and fun to to skip in and out of the, I'm calling it dream world or, you know, the place where the animus is and she's in our world. And I kind of get all of that, but it's not really tied into zero hour, but I'm kind of interested to know, I'd like to know. What the hell's going on with the rest of this story? To me, it feels a lot like this is Sandman as a superhero comic. You know, it's like, and, yeah. and Sandman was going on. Neil Gaiman's Sandman was going on at this time. So that makes it even more peculiar. I mean, I understand why it might have been greenlit with these actual fantasy novelists. Yeah. And doing some sort of urban fantasy, urban horror kind of thing. But to me, it would have worked much better as a Vertigo, and there's no Vertigo yet, but, you know, as a Vertigo series. Yeah. uh, As one of these, as something that takes place in the same kind of universe as Sandman and Hellblazer and whatnot. 
I mean, it has literary cred. It's got an intriguing concept. I, I just don't think it works as a superhero narrative. So I, I feel like Anima is out of place. Like the Anima as a superhuman character kind of blasting stuff around. Even the comic isn't very interested in this because when there's a fight, it actually gets interrupted immediately. So yeah, it's a one panel fight. Yeah. It probably helps this notion that Brent Anderson is doing the art because he can do like a very moody kind of almost Gene Colan ish kind of thing here and yeah. which he's done in other books where the normal penciler is Steve Crespo who did the cover so if you look at the cover that's the the look of anima normally which is much more superhero e you know it's just a shot of her blasting Eris, yeah. I guess it's Eris. You know, it's buildings and people firing blasts and whatnot. So the art works for a superhero comic, kind of ordinary one in a way. But if Courtney had been just like a regular girl who has this can tap into the, the Jungian field and just work that as a sort of supernatural horror, urban fantasy kind of thing, I think the series yeah. would have been much more interesting. And then it would have been you know, if it could have lasted, it could, it could have been folded into Vertigo the same way that Sandman and Black Orchid and Kid Eternity. I mean, that's kind of the feeling here is like some of those books. That intrigue and that feel and, you know, these superhuman characters, they do things that are completely normal. Like, you know, Johnny here with his superpowered sound guitar. I mean, he's just he's just a musician, but, you know, he has powers with. Or he can do sound blasts with the guitar. That's the kind of stuff I think would have worked well with Anima also. I mean, I don't know. If her green blasts didn't come out of her hands but came out of uh, some weird book or something. Yeah. Well, well, how do you tap into archetypes and the, 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 the you know collective unconscious and art is a way. So, you know, yeah. if she'd been... You know, brush strokes or like like him, it's a, it's music or you know if if there's something there, but instead it's all in the superhero. The whole idea of characters coming out of bloodlines is to me kind of ridiculous because either yeah. like everybody's got the same origin, but they're all completely different characters, and like one yeah. of these characters is fated to access the Jungian underworld because her family's DNA has been manipulated for generations. So it was just a matter of time before she got meta-humaned. But it doesn't feel like that's the same origin story. It's not like, oh, I got sucked dry by an alien and now I have powers. It's like it, the moment has been <laughs> prepared. So yeah. like some of these characters, it just doesn't feel like they're part of... We, we're just starting all these characters at the same time. They've all got this blanket origin story that makes them more boring. Yeah, and, absolutely. And then it... it actually impairs their ability to i mean now it's just odd that she was a bloodline that she was a blood pack character you know and i mean why why even do that why even do this blanket origin for a bunch of i mean and very few of those characters made it out i mean hitman is the only one that's remembered yeah. with any kind of positive feeling i was gonna say rightfully so but in a big way because he was even in the Arrowverse. i mean hitman was in there was he? So yeah, yeah, I mean that's a character that's well remembered. But um, I remember reading the Hitman comic books at your house. So that's what happened. Yeah, my box is in disarray. No, I mean <laughs> it was it's... like twenty years ago, though. It was like twenty <laughs> years ago. I have not picked up after myself or yourself <laughs> since then. No, I yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a shame because some of these character concepts might have been interesting. Some of them I do think were pretty good, but 
if each one had their own origin story. Oh, yeah. That was thematically consistent with what they were and what they were doing. I think that would be they would be stronger characters and less likely to be cut in half unceremoniously in a story. Anyway, that's what I think. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if if you take this concept, you know, you do miniseries with it right now or or even full graphic novels, I mean, it would be great. The concept of this character being able to tap into in the union Jungian, I don't know how to say this, field or this dream power and everything. I mean, the concept is just great, but you know, Claude armor all gray, that's kind yeah, of boring. No. And and this origin blood, ah, oh, that's boring. It's the '90s, and then you've got this other side of the other side of the '90s was mature readers comics coming to the fold and being mainstream. This isn't mature readers or anything, but you know, urban fantasy became a thing yeah. in in comics at the time. So it straddles those two ideas where oh, it's yeah. like generic bloodline blood blood this and blood that and death this and just that stuff of the 90s and then also that idea of urban fantasy and more sophisticated storytelling that was coming in and it's just you know it's on the line between those things and there's only one of those things that's interesting <laughs> yeah exactly but i mean i do enjoy my urban fantasy i mean if it wasn't for this period of time in the dc universe we probably never would have had the Teen Titans go radical. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm alone on this one. Uh, <laughs> you know, with the night begins to shine and everything. I mean, that's all urban fantasy that I love. You know, I love my radical, <laughs> radical cyborg. Love it. Uh, what's going on with the rash in this book, Mike? I mean, there's a rash going around in this book. There's a rash on uh, Jer. You know, mentions it. Yeah, it, it, okay, it, he mentions it. Yeah, yeah, the rash. There's okay, a rash yeah. going on. And then... <laughs> it looks like worse than a rash. <laughs> it, it, and then there's a, a cop, a trooper, right. with the same the rash. rash. in the hand, yeah. And this is why I need to read the entire series. I need to know what the hell this rash is. One last bit for me is uh, when Eris attacks Anima, she calls her Anima. Yeah. And to me, it's like... You probably shouldn't do that. Like when your character is maybe not very well known or you maybe you're just begging the reading public to also call her enema. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're opening that floodgate. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not, it's not like calling somebody somebody like Webhead or anything. And, and still fans call Spider-Man Webhead all the time. So it's like, <laughs> ugh. But that was my basically my last note on <laughs> on the book. That actually, I thought it was a typo. I, I was like. Did she really call her enema? Well, this town needs an enema. <laughs> I didn't want to admit it, but I did enjoy that moment. It's fun. You have any last thoughts? You know what? I'm very intrigued in this world because in just one book, they, they kind of presented this weird world and weird dreamscape type world where baseball people and real characters can be in the comic book and you can throw monster baseball and you can drink angel tears and they created this world and i'm very intrigued because it's dark and it's weird but once again other than the fact that there's a superman sign and they they say that superman came along and took him over to a little for a little little stroll in another adventure and then they came back and then the whiteout at the end this 
I mean, it barely qualifies as a zero hour tie-in. I do love that that last page, you know, like the way the the chains are drawn, where Animus's chains break. That's like a cool visual, a cool grid uh, of panels. But yeah, it's just, uh, if we're interested in Anima, and I guess we are, we will cover another issue because she's going to get a zero issue like everybody else. So, um, Oh my, I might get to know what that rash is. You, you just might. It depends what they do with the zero issue. We'll see. And I will admit, I really do enjoy this art. I think the art is very nice. And it's too bad it's a guest penciler then, and that the rest of the series probably doesn't look like this. <laughs> Aww. Uh, oh. Uh, did you hear that? That's the bubble being busted. <laughs> we'll take a short break. And when we return, your feedback on our previous episode. Automa, Argus, Automa, Ballistic, Cardinal Sin, Channelman, Chimera, Edge, Freight Train, Geist, Gunfire, Akrat, Harry Force, Hitman, Hook, Jam, Joe Public, Gloria, Crack, Layla, Lionheart, Loose Cannon, Megabiter, Mongoloid, Myriad, Nightblade, Output, Pass, Prism, Razor Shark, Rodney Jane, Samaritan, Shadow Strike, Slick Shot, Smart Shot, Terrorist, Wow, that's a lot of radical trademark names. And you may not have heard of any of them, but they were all introduced in DC Comics' 1993 Summer Annuals. Most went on to figure into more stories within their four-color universe. Many earned their own spotlight series, and one became a cult hit from acclaimed creators. While the comics of the 1990s are often derided, for me, as a longtime comic book reader, I found a deepened fandom and a safe harbor from the Chromium Age in the DCU. I fell in love with the history and legacy found in generations of heroic mantles, and my journey into this continuity largely began with Bloodlines. Join me, the Frank, as I explore the more overlooked areas of DC Comics' superheroes, beginning with an early 90s intellectual property generating stunt and fanning outward towards other obscurities and icons from throughout decades of sequential art stories, all flowing through the DC bloodlines. Podcast available on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. Letters lost in time. Letters lost in time. Excerpts from your comments on our coverage of the Justice League tie-ins. Ooh. Yes, Chris Franklin gets at the heart of things. He talks about triumph. He says, such potential, but so wasted. Imagine if they had made him, you know, like, likable. <laughs> a character who can actually who was actually friends with the original five leaguers who had connections to them, and they don't remember him at all. A person retconned out of existence can make a powerful story. Instead, we get Triumph the Jerk. No one minded seeing going full heel in Morrison's JLA. It is amazing that DC didn't take Zero Hour to launch a proper JLA return to glory. Seems like the perfect place to do it, doesn't it? I agree. Totally agree. Of course. Glinton Robinson says, Christopher Priest mentioned to him at a con that he based his version of Triumph on a particular comics staffer that he knew at the time, but never named. Place your bets on exactly who he meant, but he definitely said it was somebody that others found abrasive and easily disliked. I'm even more mystified by the idea, you know, what did they have Christopher Priest do this? If it's not like a character that he cared about, (laughs) (laughs) why did they force him to do this? Bizarre. Very bizarre. Jeff R. agrees that the main book gets worse, the JLA book, but Task Force gets Priest as permanent writer and is a good book, although troubled by editorial interference. Triumph and Ray have an interesting dynamic there, and the other book, Extreme Justice, says it's better than you might think to damn it with faint praise. 
Okay. David S. Gutierrez says it would be a long time before the JL books were good. Task Force was always better of the three during its run, though it didn't even stick to its initial premise long before turning into John Jones's School of Gifted Students. But it's not hard to be better than Extreme Justice or a team that has Blue Devil and a Space Bird. Not even my precious Wonder Woman could make that JLA book work. Diablo Frank, speaking of Wonder Woman, says, I didn't get the Triumph issues until I'd started collecting Martian Manhunter comics. Since I wasn't married to DC continuity at that point, I was able to enjoy his being the League's retroactive Pete Best without it giving me an aneurysm. Priest used to have a bunch of commentary posts on his blog that got into the nuts and bolts of this specific story and the Triumph group creation process. He was particularly displeased with Phil Jimenez getting all Jim Shooter nitpicky on how failures to follow script direction had hobbled the arc. So I guess maybe the artwork was not representative of the original script. Um, but I don't think that's where the problem necessarily lies in these issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian Linton finds a silver lining. He says, while this episode didn't make me want to seek them out, your discussion of the rookie heroes in Just League America 92 has inspired me to reread Mark Wade's JLA Year One series. That's a good book. Captain Entropy says, I'm a Christopher Priest fan, so I'm unsurprised that even while serving a flawed crossover, he was able to craft better stories with these teams than anyone else did. But even Priest has limits. So like Brian said, I'm not adding these issues to my reading pile anytime soon. Tim Price says, I'll admit it. I continued with Justice League America until number 100. And even... I'd had enough by then and took a break until Morrison. Blue Devil's portrayal was painful. Kept with Task Force all the way to the finish, showing the strength of the creative team, even though some parts of the series were troubling. And no, it wasn't Triumph, although he was a jerky jerk. The callous detachment of John. The horrible treatment of Priest's character, Mistech. No hint of Elrond's humorous self in hulking Despero. My main joy was it being a race spinoff title, which it wasn't supposed to be. Pragmatic Golem says, I find the ending Priest gave Triumph on the last issue of Task Force was great. It was dark and fitting for the character. Okay. Huh. But then, I mean, he got other finishes that were not so good, I guess. <laughs> uh, Paul Hicks says, who oh boy, these comics sucked. Feel free to use this comment for most upcoming episodes. <laughs> Paul. Uh, Chris Lister says, in Avengers No Surrender, a new character named Voyager is introduced, and everyone suddenly remembered that she was a long-lost and forgotten founding member of the Avengers. The event where she was erased from history was during a battle with Kang and the Squadron Supreme that involved a similarly forgotten squadron member named Victory. Victory? Triumph? Get it? <gasps> This is like, uh, we mentioned Sentry, yeah. but uh, Jessica Jones, right, was also retconned into the Avengers. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like a trope that's like uh, sort of a postmodern trope that um, people have been doing in the 90s and 2000s where, okay, like this character was there all along. Um, <laughs> and it's a way to tell stories about characters that, that have a long history even yep. though they don't. So on that note, we have to mention that the Fire & Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page. If you like our content, please think about making a one-time or monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards. Get on that zero list at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, just like these fine folks did. Because when they, you get on the zero list, it means you're going to escape the cataclysmic time wave that's coming from both ends of history. You lucky bastards. Well, we're safe, Bass. Up to now, the podcast has been going, so 
we seem to be still okay. Okay. But there's no real protection or guarantee. It's just, but these people have been saved for sure. Jim Bao has been saved from getting hit in the noggin by an immortality giving meteor. David Capoon has been saved from the bayou near Huma, Louisiana. Michael Bailey has been saved from the adult legion of supervillains, Clutches, and Diablo Frank has been saved from a bedazzling incident on Gemworld. A reminder that you can leave us comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow Fire and Water's Facebook page and on Twitter, the account is FW Podcasts. And you can also now find the podcast on Spotify. I mention it every time, but it's still true. Next time on Zero Hour Strikes, we're finally there. Zero Hour Number Zero. zero.